chapter 22. And if you're using a church Bible, that's page 1058. Last week we said that the storm has started in Luke's gospel, meaning that Judas has agreed to betray Jesus. And we're told that he's watching for an opportunity to hand Jesus over away from the crowds. But we saw last week that Jesus and his disciples have been able to eat the Passover meal together. And when we pick up this morning, they're still sitting around that table. We left them discussing who the betrayer was going to be. But they soon move on to another discussion. And we pick up this morning in chapter 22, verse 24. And I'll read through to verse 38. Also a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the cock crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. And Jesus asked them, when I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, see, Lord, here are two swords. That is enough, he replied. This is God's word. And in our passage, Jesus teaches his disciples and he teaches us about true greatness and about real life. First of all, true greatness in verses 24 to 30. It is almost unbelievable that verse 24 could follow verses 14 to 23. In verses 14 to 23, Jesus spoke about the true meaning of the Passover meal. He spoke, too, about the meaning of his own death. He's going to lay down his life as a voluntary, substitutionary sacrifice for sinners. 
He's going to die willingly in the place of sinners for the salvation of sinners. Then Jesus spoke about the evil betrayal that was going to take place. One of his own hand-picked disciples is going to hand him over to be killed. After all that Jesus has been saying, it is almost unbelievable that we read in verse 24, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. It's almost unbelievable. But when we stop to think about it, it shouldn't surprise us at all. We know by now that the disciples are preoccupied with their own status. Back in chapter 9, Luke records an almost identical situation. He told us an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be greatest. Verse 24 should not surprise us given what we know about the disciples. And it shouldn't surprise us given what we know about ourselves. How many of our own tensions and arguments and fallouts are due to disputes over who should be considered the greatest? How many church splits happen for this reason? Oh, I know, they're almost never presented in that way. But if we trace it all back to the source, don't we often find a power struggle? People are grasping after recognition and elevation. Or maybe they feel their gifts and abilities haven't been given the recognition they deserve. And from that root of personal pride comes great damage to the church. Time and energy that should go into building Christ's kingdom go into trying to build our own little kingdoms. Yes, it's true. Judas is the one who's going to betray Jesus. He's going to hand him over to the authorities. But the truth is that here, as they talk around the table, every one of the disciples is in danger of betraying Jesus. They're in danger of sacrificing a focus on Jesus' sacrifice for a focus on their own personal position. Judas is betraying Jesus for money. Are these others going to betray Jesus for their own self-promotion? These disciples need to hear Jesus' response to this obsession with greatness that they have. And if you and I are honest, maybe we need to hear it too. Because we're not above disputes over greatness ourselves. So look what Jesus says in verse 27. Excuse me, verse 25. The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. The greatest one serves. That is both a statement about what Jesus himself did and it also describes what true greatness looks like. Jesus begins here by describing the standard approach to greatness and power. Those who have power 
use it to lord it over others. Power is seen not so much as a chance to help others, it's seen as an opportunity to strut around like a peacock, to put others in their place. Those given the responsibility of exercising power expect to get credit for what they do. They expect honor and recognition. The NIV says in verse 25, those who exercise authority call themselves benefactors. A better translation is probably those who exercise authority get themselves called benefactors. In other words, they want a bit of credit where they believe credit is due. Give me a title. Give me respect. Give me a designated parking spot. The biggest office. And definitely give me the biggest paycheck. Isn't that how it often goes? Maybe you're thinking, well, no, actually. It never goes that way for me. But the point here is we're all tempted to want a bit of recognition and elevation. The point is not whether we actually get it or not. The point is we'd like it if we could get it. But Jesus says very clearly in verse 26, you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. Notice Jesus does not deny that some will be given greater responsibility. Some will rule. Leaders are necessary. But his point is how that leading is to be carried out what attitude the leaders must have. The greatest should be like the youngest. We said a moment ago that this same dispute has happened before. And when it did, in chapter 9, Luke told us, Jesus took a little child and made him stand beside him. Now this past week, there have been heated debates about the place of children and youth in our society. Some people say we've been pandering and pampering them too much. Other people say we haven't been listening to them enough. What was the situation in Jesus' time? Well, commentators tell us that children were not highly esteemed at that time. One writer says that in Judaism, children under 12 could not be taught the Torah. That's the Old Testament law. And so to spend time with them was considered a waste of time. And in the Roman world, children were seen as at the bottom of the ladder of esteem. Now you'll notice Jesus makes no comment about what he thought of those views of children. We learn back in chapter 18 that he made time for children. He welcomed them, even as the disciples were trying to shoo them away. So Jesus is not endorsing his society's low view of children. But he is saying to his followers you must be content to be as overlooked and unnoticed as a child. Even if you're the most gifted. It is not for you to fight for personal recognition and promotion. You're to be content to get on with what might seem like the most menial and unrewarding work for my kingdom. The stuff that never seems to get noticed or applauded. And Jesus says, when you're given responsibility, use it to serve, not to show how important you are. 
And then Jesus again shows how the attitudes of his followers must be different from the attitudes of the world around them. In verse 27, he asks, Who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. The question seems to be, according to the perspective of this world, who's greater, the diner or the waiter? The answer is obvious. The person who serves tables is not counted as the big person. But then Jesus says, I am here as a servant. Previously, Jesus has made no secret that he's God's anointed king. He's the one who will rule as God's king. He's the greatest. And now Jesus says, the greatest one serves. John tells us in his gospel account that at this point, Jesus rose from the table and washed his disciples' feet. Jesus' approach is to be our model. Back in verses 19 and 20 here, he explained that he's going to give his life for his people. There's no greater act of service than that. And his service is both our only way to salvation and it's our model of what true greatness looks like. Later on, Peter showed that he had learned from Jesus' model. In his first letter, he says, each one of you should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. You and I can't die for the sins of the world. Only Jesus could do that. But we are called to take on Jesus' definition of true greatness. It's very, very different from the generally accepted definition of greatness. But it's the only definition that's acceptable in God's kingdom. And Jesus says it leads to reward from God. That's the message of verses 28 to 30. Faithful servants are rewarded by God. He says, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. And I confer on you a kingdom. Just as my father conferred one on me. So that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Notice, even here, Jesus is modeling what godly leadership looks like. It doesn't hoard authority. Jesus has been given a kingdom. And he, in turn, gives it to his disciples. Now, that doesn't mean Jesus is going to be equal on a level with his disciples. No, it will still be, in verse 30, his table that they eat at. It will still be his kingdom that they help to rule. But the fact remains, God's future kingdom is not going to be a place where Jesus the Lord lords it over his people. It will be a place where his faithful servants are given responsibility. We've noticed before that when the New Testament talks about future rewards for God's people, Those rewards are in the form of greater opportunities to serve. And we see that again here. These faithful servants will serve Jesus by judging or ruling the 12 tribes of Israel. We might wonder what exactly does Jesus have in mind here? But we can't be sure exactly what he has in mind. He doesn't give details. 
But what seems to be clear is that these first disciples will have a special leadership responsibility. A special role in the new heaven and earth. But the wider application is that those who belong to Jesus and follow his pattern of service are going to be rewarded with more opportunity to serve in his future kingdom. Faithful servants are rewarded by God. So Jesus has addressed the disciples' hunger for power and prestige. And now he turns to deal with a related problem, the problem of their self-confidence. And we might respond by saying, well, how is self-confidence a problem? Surely it's lack of self-confidence that's a problem. And certainly we have that view drummed into us all the time. Just believe in yourself. Every time I hear an Olympic athlete being interviewed, they tell me that I too could be an Olympian if I just believed in myself. So look out for me on the track at London 2012. Maybe I'll be in the pool as well. It all depends how much self-belief I can drum up between now and then. Having challenged our views on status and position, Jesus now challenges our views on what counts as healthy confidence. And he does that by giving his disciples some insight into real life. He points them to reality with regard to ourselves and then with regard to the world around us. He's just spoken about the future reality of thrones in heaven. And now he tells the disciples what's in store in the more immediate future. They are going to discover the truth about their own weakness. Look at verse 31. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the cock crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. There's a footnote in the NIV which points out something we don't get from our English translation. In verse 31, the word you is plural. So although Jesus addresses his comments to Simon Peter, he's saying to the group, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. What does Jesus mean? Well, this chapter has already mentioned Satan's activity. Back in verse 3, we were told that Satan entered Judas, one of the twelve. This night in history is the night when Satan makes his biggest move. He's going after God's king. And now Jesus explains he's also going after the king's followers. He has asked to sift them. We might say today he has asked to take them apart, to pick them to pieces. That's what Satan has asked to do. But who has he asked? Well, there's only one person Satan needs to ask permission from, and that's God. 
The picture we get here is similar to what we find in the book of Job. The first chapter of Job takes us to the throne room of heaven. And we find Satan presenting himself before God. He asks God's permission to sift Job. He wants to take Job apart. Why? Because he doubts Job's integrity. He believes that Job is a fraud. Satan believes that Job only worships God because his life is going swimmingly. Everything's rosy for Job. So Satan says to God, let me test him. Let me sift him. And we'll see how he ends up. If you've read the book of Job, you know that God gives Satan permission to test Job. Not to destroy him, but to test him. It's very similar to what we find here in Luke chapter 22. Satan has asked to test the integrity of these disciples. And we're to understand that God has given him permission, just as he did with Job. How do we know that? Because in the next verse, Jesus talks to Peter about turning back again. That implies, first of all, he's going to fall away. So the sense of verse 31 is, Satan has asked and has gained permission to sift all of you. Why on earth would God grant Satan's request? Well, we've just seen that these disciples are a pretty self-confident, self-promoting group. Apparently, they all think they're great. The argument is over who's the greatest. If these disciples are going to learn to serve humbly and to stay faithful, they have to develop confidence in God's power, not their own power. That's what God will do through this sifting. Now, it's not what Satan intends, of course. He wants to destroy them eternally. But what God will do through Satan's sifting will be to show these men their weakness and their dependence on God. So Jesus says in verse 32, I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. When Jesus says, I have prayed that your faith may not fail, he clearly means fail totally. Fail in an ultimate conclusive sense. Because it will only be a couple of hours before Peter's faith fails in a very public, humiliating way. But Jesus is looking beyond that short-term failure. Satan has made his request. But Jesus has also made a request. He has asked his father for Peter's preservation. Peter's going to fall flat on his face in terms of his faithfulness to Jesus. But because Jesus has interceded for Peter, his faith will not ultimately fail. And the rest of the New Testament confirms that very clearly. This self-confident disciple would be restored. And he would go on to write these words to other believers. The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power 
forever and ever. Amen. Peter knew what he was talking about when he wrote that. He doesn't know it here. He's still full of self-confidence at this point. But after Peter has been sifted, he'll learn to put his confidence in God's power. God is going to use Satan's attack on these disciples to show them the reality of their own weakness. He's going to use their failure as a means to strip away their foolish self-confidence and turn them to confidence in God. Jesus tells these disciples, and he tells Peter in particular, yes, you will be attacked by the devil, but you will be preserved by God's power and grace. And when Peter has learned the reality of his own weakness and God's power, then he'll be able to obey Jesus' command in verse 32. When you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Strengthen them with what? With the idea that they should just believe in themselves? That they should search for the hero inside themselves? No, when this night is over, they will have no reason to believe in themselves anymore. They'll all have seen their own weakness. Peter is to strengthen these men with the assurance that God himself has the power to restore them and to make them strong, firm, and steadfast in his power. You and I may well face terrible trials and difficulties in this life. We may well find ourselves sifted beyond what we imagined possible. And we are wise if we're quick to admit our own weakness. We are wise if we then cling to the fact that Satan's power to sift us cannot match God's power to keep us and to restore us even when we fail him. But Peter hasn't yet discovered the depths of his own weakness. In verses 33 and 34, he's still living in a fantasy world. The fantasy world where Peter is the all-conquering one. He's cocky about where he'll go with Jesus, to prison and to death. Jesus says, no, Peter. In a few hours, you will learn the truth about yourself. You're weak. It's a dangerous thing for a Christian to be cocky. We're in a good place if we have a healthy grasp of our own inability. It's good to know that we're out of our depth when it comes to serving Jesus and staying faithful. In fact, one theologian has described the essence of true religion as an absolute feeling of dependence. God made us out of dust. It's a good thing when we feel dependent on God. It shows that we're in touch with reality. Now, we might think that losing our self-confidence will turn us into shy, weak-kneed people who don't achieve anything. But the New Testament tells a very different story. It tells us that once these disciples were cured of their own confidence in themselves, they became men who turned the world upside down. 
That's how their opponents describe them in the book of Acts. According to the New Testament, it's our self-confidence that keeps us weak and ineffective. Trusting in God's power enables us to do things we could never do by ourselves. Many of the greatest preachers and servants of God have been empty of self-belief. They were not naturally inspiring or charismatic people. But being able to see the shallows of their own resources opened their eyes to the vast ocean of God's resources. When we begin to believe in God's ability, we gain courage we could never get from our own ability. Jesus says we need to discover the truth about ourselves and also about the world around us. Hostility. Look at verse 35. Then Jesus asked them, When I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, But now if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That is enough, he replied. In verse 35, Jesus is referring back to chapters 9 and 10. In those chapters, he had sent the disciples out to preach the good news about him. And they met with great success. Chapter 10 says they returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. In those earlier trips, Jesus had told them not to bother taking provisions. Why? Because he knew people would welcome them. They would receive hospitality. Up to this point, the disciples have been spared from the hostility that Jesus has faced. But now he's going to be executed as a blasphemer and a criminal. And things are going to change for his followers. He's leaving them to carry on his work. And the hostility against him is now going to be directed against them. So they can no longer count on a welcome wherever they go. They'll need to carry some provisions. The purse and bag are symbols of the fact that they are going to be rejected. So what about the call to buy a sword? Is Jesus calling for violence? Well, that question is answered in the passage we'll look at next time. When Peter does pull out a sword and use it later that night, Jesus says, no more of this. And then he heals the injured man. So clearly Jesus is not calling for violence here. But what does he mean? Well, just as the purse and bag point to the fact that hospitality is going to be in short supply, so the call for a sword points to the reality that sometimes there will be active hostility towards them. They will be put under great pressure. They will have to struggle and persevere in the midst of opposition. Why? Why is it going to be that way for them? Because they follow the one who was numbered with the transgressors. 
Jesus is quoting those words from Isaiah 53 that Peter read earlier. Jesus was hated during his life because he associated with sinners, with people that the Jews saw as the dregs of society. And over time, Jesus himself came to be seen as the dregs of society. He's going to be executed as a criminal outside the holy city in an unclean place without even a tomb of his own to be buried in. He was numbered with the transgressors. And often his followers will also be seen as the dregs of society, the troublemakers in society, those who are just unacceptable. And we can see glimpses of that today, even in England. The Bible's teaching on men and women's roles, on discipline, on sexual ethics and sin, all of that teaching is radically out of step with what our society sees as acceptable. If you and I are followers of Jesus Christ, we need to grasp the truth about the world around us. This world at its heart is hostile to Jesus Christ. And sometimes we'll feel that hostility ourselves in greater or lesser ways. Last Saturday, I dialed a wrong number. And the man who answered picked up quickly on my accent. And he started a very pleasant conversation about where I was from. After a couple of minutes, he asked me what business I worked in. And as soon as I said that I worked in a church, he immediately started swearing at me about bleeping Christians. And then he hung up the phone. Now that's a very minor example of hostility. And maybe that man had had a bad experience with people who called themselves Christians. I don't know. But it is an example of the kind of hostility that can come our way. Of course, it's not always like that. There are times and places when the good news about Jesus is welcomed with open arms. Men and women flock to hear it and receive it. Society looks to Christians for their biblical wisdom. But you and I don't live in one of those times and places. We should not be surprised by rejection. We need to be ready for some degree of struggle as we follow Jesus. We have to plan to persevere in God's power. That's real life for the Christian. Personal weakness and hostility from this world. And some of you this morning know all about it. Maybe you know about rejection from your family or friends. Or maybe you know all about failing Jesus and falling flat on your face. Personal weakness. All your illusions about your own strength have been taken away from you. Maybe you're being sifted right now by some family illness. But the rest of us here probably find it hard to learn these lessons. You know, in theory that we're weak, but deep down we can be pretty confident in ourselves. Certainly these disciples are confident. In verse 38 they say, See, Lord, here are two swords. They've badly misunderstood. They think that they can win this fight on their own. 
But notice what Jesus says. That is enough. He's not saying, good, two swords will get the job done. Commentators point out that this is an expression of exasperation. He's saying that's enough talk about swords. The point he was making has been lost on these men. They're still brimming over with self-confidence. They will have to learn the hard way. Our passage began with a debate about human greatness. And it was a debate that took place in the shadow of the cross. The cross which stands as the greatest monument to human sin and weakness. In a few hours from this point, Jesus is going to hang there because none of us are great. He's going to hang there because we're all born slaves to sin. We're unable to save ourselves. Looking at the cross is the greatest antidote to our pride. When you and I start slipping into self-confidence... also remember that because of the cross, we can have rock-solid assurance of God's love for us, his commitment to keep us, to pick us up when we fall. At the cross, God paid a high price for us. He will preserve us to the end. Let's pray. Let's pray.